Welcome to the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Craig Chalquist, a CIIS professor who researches mythology from a psychological perspective. His talk, which explores how myths jump out of the myth books and into our lives, was recorded on March 30, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, please find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you. And thank you, Public Programs, for hosting this event here. I thought what I would do is... Uh, actually a number of things. Um, I'd like to start with why I got interested in this. One of the privileges of doing something like this, um, an event like this, is that faculty get to come up here and say what we're passionate about. And as part of that, I wanted to explain a little bit about how myth grabbed me. Uh, one of my teachers, Christine Downing, used to say that myth doesn't just stay in the textbooks and that for some of us, it actually reaches out and grabs us. And that's what happened to me. So I wanted to say a little bit about that by way of uh, explaining why I study this and why I'm so interested in it and what relevance I think it has. And then, so I wanted to talk about what myth is a little bit. Uh, it seems to be a really um, confuse, confusing and contentious thing. Even the name myth is controversial. Uh, after that, I'd like to talk about why myth matters, why we should actually study it, why it makes a difference in our lives. And um, after that, uh, a little bit about, of course, the, the topic of, the, of this evening, myth in the news, where it's actually showing up in contemporary events and what that might mean. And it can mean many different things. And then uh, I'll suggest a few ways to work with myth, if it happens to be up for you as well, uh, whenever that happens. And then. I'll finish by uh, listing a couple of resources for finding out more about myth, and then I'm happy to have questions and discussions at that point. So that was my plan for the evening. And uh, I should start by saying I was reading through the news today, and I saw the word unicorn. And I started to get hopeful and, and enchanted, and then I saw a news story that went with the word, and it said, that there was uh, some sort of a dinosaur that was, whose remains were discovered in southern Siberia. So I was looking forward to seeing the artist's picture of what this unicorn looked like. And it was kind of pathetic, actually. It looked like a rhinoceros. And <laughs> I was deflated. <laughs> and I thought, this, this is, the only thing this has in common with a unicorn is that they both have a horn, you know? So I guess it was a s slow day on the science desk or whatever. But it did remind me that myth right now, and not just in our culture, but all over the world, is huge. It's a real going topic for lots of different reasons, actually. So a couple of examples of that. Um, now, let me know if you think this would be a good job to have, because I, I kind of aspire to it eventually. I like my current job as program chair. 
And I should also mention, I'm president of the Depth Psychology Alliance, but if this job ever opens up, I'm gonna be really tempted. And it was held by somebody who's gonna be at CIS at the beginning of October. His name is D Dave Dutt-Pattenike. Have any of you heard of him? You have. <laughs> Anybody else? No? So if you go in, go look him up online and Dave Dutt, D-E-V-D-U-T-T, uh, TED Talk, and he'll probably come up. He's currently India's most popular mythologist. And the job that I'm, I'm sort of coveting, he doesn't have it anymore, he's now an independent academic, but he was the chief mythology officer for, I think it was uh, India's second largest retailer or something like that. But, um, so he got to mythologize for a living. That, that's kind of amazing. So that's one example. Um, Mumbai University just launched a new uh, mythology program. The reason, one of the reasons is that there are currently over 15 TV and movie productions now being developed in India, specifically dealing with Indian mythological figures. Uh, and that's one part of the world where people are getting newly interested in their sacred stories and wanting to tell them in their own way instead of, and I'll, I'm gonna talk about this a little bit later, instead of having interpretations imposed on them from outside. So this is going on everywhere. There's a huge resurgence in storytelling and uh, there's a class I actually teach, I'd like to do a version of it here, but I teach it online for Pacifica Graduate Institute called uh, Storytelling and Deep Storytelling and Archetypal Activism. Uh, it's pretty popular, but uh, all over the world, there's storytelling events, societies, networks. There's a national storytelling network in this country. Um, in film, there's mythic characters. On TV, there's, in this country, there's Game of Thrones, a Once Upon a Time, and other shows happening, more in production. Uh, some people are talking about whether Star Wars is a sort of modern myth. I'm going to say something about that later. Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, um, perhaps superhero characters are an American version of mythic characters returning to the stage. Um, and then <clears throat> in religion, there's of course ongoing religious conflicts, messianic movements with a lot of uh, symbolic imagery connected to them. And so in all these different ways, myth uh, is huge. And let me say briefly too that by myth, I don't mean what our culture tends to take that word to mean, which is some sort of a lie or an archaic explanation for weather or something else that science has now uh, explained to us. Uh, I mean myth the way a lot of myth and folklore scholars do, which is a traditional or sacred story that deals with our relationship with the more than human. So for me, a myth is not a lie. In fact, it's a, tr it's a kind of truth or a set of truths with a capital T rather than a literal empirical truth. Um, so I was lucky enough before, long before this resurgence happened, but myth is always, myth has never really gone away in terms of not being popular in terms of storytelling and a little bit in film and books and things. And uh, as a boy, I was exposed to some of it. Um, I actually found the myth classes in school pretty boring. Um, didn't really see what the relevance was for me of Zeus or Hera or any of them. 
Um, that was all waiting in the future. But uh, I did get a lot of myth in, the, in terms of fantasy stories, um, fantasy shows that I liked, uh, some science fiction, which has some mythological themes in it. So it whetted my appetite, but nothing really happened until I actually went to Pacifica and I began studying depth psychology and myth, uh, a little bit about how Jung held it. There's some limitations to that, and if I have time, I'll get into what they are. And then, um, so fast forward to when I was a graduate student, and I just had a class with Christine Downing, and she had mentioned in the class that we get caught in mythic situations all the time without knowing it, because we don't have an education in myth, by and large, except for those little pieces that we get maybe in elementary school, or somebody tells us a mythic story or whatever. But we don't have an education in myth outside the textbooks. And that these stories are not archaic so much as walking around all the time in, among us, as Joseph Campbell pointed out. So um, I was a, a broke graduate student. I moved uh, back to San Diego County, which is where I grew up. I had been gone for, I think it was about 18 years. and. Um, I was kind of thinking about, why am I here? <laughs> why, I, I, mean, I went to the trouble of moving all over California and doing lots of interesting things. I ran men's programs with, um, uh, in conjunction with the Superior Court of Ventura County and then Santa Barbara County. Um, got some training psychologically and did other things. What, what am I doing back in San Diego? And it hadn't really surfaced for me yet. So uh, one day I was putting books away in the bedroom that a friend of mine uh, with the rather mythic name of Daniel had made available to me because I was too broke even to afford my own place. And um, I put one book up and I didn't, I guess, put it up securely enough and it, it fell on my head <laughs> on the way to the floor, bonk. And so um, at Pacifica they had been talking about synchronicity and how we should look at things as potential sources of meaning, even if they seem random. So, and the book kind of hit me hard. You know? <laughs> was, wow, that was, a, that was a, quite a... So um, I thought, all right, just for the hell of it, I wonder what this is. What, what book just hit me in the head? And um, I opened it and looked at the cover, and it was The Odyssey. And I sat down and began to think about why that was. So... I thought about the fact that, um, I guess it was in my late 20s, uh, I met my grandfather for the first time. And uh, I, I grew up in my adoptive family, but in my 20s went looking for my birth families because I knew that my ancestry would be important to me someday. I just felt it. Not all adoptees do. Most of us, in fact, don't ever bother to search. We just say, well, my adoptive family is my family. And I felt that way, too. I still feel that way. I, they're the ones I grew up with. But I just felt like I needed to know more. So by way of doing all that, I ended up meeting my maternal grandfather. And um, I remember <laughs> my relatives warning me about uh, what it would be like to meet him. And they said, you know, he's, he's kind of an ogre. He's mean, and he's really blunt, and I thought, well, I kind of like him already. I mean, <laughs> I deal with guys like that in my men's groups. 
And they said, and, and, you know, focus on his left eye because he's missing one eye. And I said, really? And, and they, yeah, yeah, because uh, he, he hit himself in the face with a tool one day in, the, in his workshop, and he, he put his eye out. So you're, you're facing this one-eyed ogre, you know. I said, okay, great, I'm going to meet him. So I knock on his door, and he says, um, he, he was, I had sent him some paperwork about the adoption, and I, I ended up having three or four different names as a result of it. Uh, my current name is my adoptive and legal name. And he said to me, um, so by what name should I call you? And if I had had the Odyssey in mind back then, I could have had some fun with that <laughs> and said, oh, call me nobody or whatever. So I thought about him as I'm sitting there on the floor looking at this book. I thought about a relationship I had been in for a really long time, which was one of those relationships that you just can't seem to get out of, and it keeps pulling you back and pulling you back, and you decide, oh, this isn't really for me, and then it pulls you back in again, and how the person I was living with in that relationship, we had an apartment together in an apartment complex called Capri, which is the home of the sirens, right? I thought about Odysseus in the underworld uh, saying to Tiresias, the blind prophet, I tried so hard to save my men, and all I want to do is go back home. And I thought about the many, the six years, actually, of men's groups I had done with people who were court-referred uh, for violent crimes. So men who had done jail and prison time, and trying to show them a better way of doing things, how to be peaceful men. Uh, and self-integrated men and mature men. We, we spent a lot of time trying to grow them up in our groups, in our men's groups. So the more I thought about it, and there were still parallels up ahead of me that I hadn't even run into yet, the more amazed I became that I seemed to be living my own Californian version of the Odyssey with all these incredible parallels. And there's many more that I could go into, but I won't waste the time. And so... I started to say, you know, what, what Christine Downing was talking about is me. Th this isn't like a theoretical, psychological thing that's really interesting to talk about. This is my life. I'm caught in a story that I don't particularly want to be in, actually. Um, don't much like Odysseus. And yet the things that he did in symbolic, in metaphoric form were places that I had gone in, in California. In fact him being gone from Ithaca, which is his home, about the same length of time before Athena finally opened his eyes and said, hey, you're actually home now, you know. So um, that was the beginning of really being grabbed by this and asking myself questions like, all right, what do I do now? I don't want this to be some kind of a determinism. How do I work with this? And, and how do I get out of this story? Because <laughs> I don't like it much, you know. And I, I actually did, by the way, get out of it eventually. Um, I learned that the story wanted something from me. It, it expected something from me. There was a contribution that I had to make to it somehow. And once I had, and part of that was my doctoral work, and part of that was just plunging into the, the world of myth. Um, we, the Odyssey is not a typical myth in the sense that we, we know pretty much at least the name of the person or persons who wrote it, but... The Odyssey is actually based on much older myths with similar figures, so it's, it's mythic that way. 
but um, asking myself, what do I do about all this? And so as I begin to answer and respond with my doctoral work and my wanderings around California doing my work, uh, a day came when in another relationship, um, my partner at that time had just moved out from the East Coast and I was actually in the middle of assembling her bed for her when I realized that Odysseus had done the same thing with Penelope. And my partner of that time was also a weaver, you know, like Penelope. And so um, not long after that, I, I actually felt like I walked out of the story, like it was done with me. And I thought, good, I never wanted to be that guy anyway. I have other things to do. So that was my introduction to how a story that didn't even originate uh, in a conscious way led me until I was ready to actually turn toward it and say, what's my odyssey? What do I have to do? How do I go to the underworld? How do I confront the mother who died? Which my along the way, my birth mother passed away. So that was, a, that was another parallel with the story. <clears throat> so this is why I teach this, because since then, uh, in my classes and, and among my colleagues and other people who work with myth in this kind of depth psychological way, we have been impressed by how powerfully these things can actually grip us. And so they, they work like any other unconscious dynamic in a way. If, if something comes up in you, and it, especially if it's constellated around a wound or an intergenerational issue, uh, or a cultural issue that's heavily impacted your family and you're still carrying the psychological legacy, probably it occurs in storied form somehow or other, and it can be worked with as a story. So I'll say more about that later. So um, I mentioned earlier that uh, a, a very simple way of understanding myth is uh, in contrast to the usual explanation of it as an archaic explanation or an untruth. Um, to fill it out a little bit, if we think about a myth as uh, not just a sacred or traditional story, but most classical myths, most myths from antiquity begin as oral tellings. Uh, this, and, we, and we don't know who began any of them, actually. There's no one pure source of a myth that we know of, at least the ancient ones. Probably what happened is people were around a fire somewhere or they were telling stories at night somewhere or maybe even during the day or they were on a pilgrimage and somebody said, you know, I had a dream last night or let me make up a story and see if, it, if you like it. And then for whatever reasons, and J.R.R. Tolkien talks about this in his letters, how certain stories persist because they grab us somehow. They, they resonate with enough of us that we keep telling them. And every time we tell them, we change them. So there's no original myth uh, that we know of. So an oral beginning to a story, it becomes a collective story. The tellers originally uh, are anonymous because we don't know who they are. Uh, oftentimes people uh, tend to believe their myths, especially when they're sacred stories. And that contrasts myth with a folktale which is not believed. So when you tell a folktale, you know that it didn't literally happen. But when you're speaking a myth from its culture of origin, if the myth is still alive for you, then you tend to think this is, this is how it was. This is, how, this is why our people are here, and this is who the gods are, 
and this is how things go. Um, there's, speaking of Tolkien, there's a, a distinction I came across in his letters that I really like in terms of working with myth. And the distinction he made was between what he called allegory and application. What he meant by allegory, and I think one of the problems he had with what he, he didn't know that much about Jung's work, but he did have a problem with some of it, and I can see why. <clears throat> um, as rich as Jung's work can be, it sometimes deals with myths as allegories of fixed psychological things. And unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of the history of myth study in the West tends to do the same thing. It's allegorical in explanation. And uh, you know, I, th I try to be respectful of who I think of as my, um, my mythic and intellectual and cultural ancestors who came before me and who worked on myth. But honestly, they sometimes feel like the uncle who shows up at Christmas and says inappropriate things. And then you have to worry about in therapy, like, but, but I gotta think about what else he stands for, you know, in addition to the stupidity, you know. And so there's this there's long, long, decades long myth studies that allegorize myth, and they try to boil it down into one thing. So one person comes along like Malinowski and says, it's all about the sun. Myths are all solar. They're, they're meant to explain how the sun goes across the sky, and that's where we get our pattern for the hero. And then other people come along and say, well, what about night? <laughs> or things that there's no sun in, you know? And then so somebody else comes along, let's say um, Levi Strauss, and says, no, it's all about language. And it's about binary oppositions in language that are at war with each other, and, and the solution to the binary is the myth, you know? Hmm, well, okay, but what about myths that don't seem to have that structure? So myth has been explained as psychological states, archetypes, uh, weather, natural forces, cultural forces, ideology, uh, artifacts of patriarchy, and all kinds of other things. And so I think this is part of the problem that Tolkien had with myth studies because as a philologist and a scholar, he loved myth and he was well up on particularly European myth. You'll see a lot of it in The Lord of the Rings and he drew it from his studies. But he didn't like this, this habit of pinning a myth down to a single explanation. So for him, application is a contrast to allegory that pins things down. Application is where you ask yourself, what does the myth say to me? And, and what does it say to the people in the culture where the story came from? What do they think of the myth? So it's, a, it's much more of a, it's less interpretive and more receptive. It's more welcoming. Uh, and it's based primarily in appreciation of the stories, whether there are stories or other people's. So I like this distinction. And so when, when I work with myth, um, when I do interpretive work, I try to do it in the spirit of uh, appreciation and application, always aware of, this is my projection onto the myth, or the, yours, or whoever's. So in that sense, working with myth is very much like working with dream. When you're dealing with a dream, especially another person's dream, you would, it, I think for most of us, it would never occur to us to say, your dream means this, you know? We would say, well, some of the associations that come up for me, which may not fit your dream, 
are this and that and this, and I appreciate your dream, and I think it's really rich, and it resonates with me, and you know. So we can treat myth that way too. And it gets us out of the allegory trap. <clears throat> um, something else about myth. Um, if you've read through myth at all, particularly European myth, you will have noticed that uh, most of it is about male figures, often powerful kings and heroes. <clears throat> and a lot of it is really violent, <laughs> um, unpleasantly so. And so it can be tempting to actually read, read a little bit of this, especially Greek mythology, the creation stories. Wow, I'm glad I didn't grow up in that family. <laughs> Being adopted is complex enough. But um, it's easy to see why people want to dismiss it as this is just patriarchal violence. But <clears throat> a myth seems to be only alive to the degree that we can treat it as susceptible of many different perspectives. So as soon as we reduce it to ideology, then we kill it. And we, the myth actually escapes us. Like the, there's a figure called Proteus, who's a, a god of the sea, who's kind of a trickster. And uh, he, he changes his shape, and he's notoriously hard to get to stand still anywhere. And myth acts like that when we try to grab hold of it and say, it's this or it's that. So diverse views of myth seem to be richer in terms of appreciating a story than to reduce it to an ideology. And also when we do that, we miss the, the possible significance of a myth as compensatory to collective consciousness. And what I mean by that, an example, um, in Greek myth, there's a lot of kings and, and masculine warriors, but there's also powerful goddesses. Powerful goddesses, Artemis and Athena and many others. And yet, in ancient Greek culture of that time, when the stories were being told and elaborated, the status of women was nothing like what it was in myth. The reason is, from this, this perspective anyway, the reason is that the myth is compensatory to what's happening in the culture, like a dream. So when, a dr when an unpleasant dream comes along, or even a dream that's strengthening a part of yourself that you don't ordinarily have access to, it's filling in a gap in, con in daily consciousness. And so we, should, we would expect myths in patriarchal cultures to emphasize patriarchy as though the myth itself were saying, this is what you are, this is, this is what you're doing, and this is why it's tragic and violent. So oftentimes a myth works like um, a filling in of collective consciousness. It shows us what we're not looking at, what we're, where we're betraying ourselves as people, where our strengths are that we're not eliciting and can work on, which is another reason that I think studying myth is important. So if there is such a thing as a modern myth, then it can help us, and we'll get into that shortly here, it can help us understand where the gaps are in collective consciousness. So before we do that, I, I wanted to um, offer a couple of quotations from many different people who've looked into myth I like the, the very different ways they all hold it. They all feel to me like they, they, they go together, but not in some sort of a unity that smashes them all together. They're all very different takes on myth, but they're all really rich. Um, I collect myth quotations, and this is a very small <laughs> sample. And as you hear these, uh, think about how so many of these address 
the idea that not only is myth still with us, and not only is myth inside of us, it's a story inside of us, but it's also the story we're inside of. So this is Sergio Cruz Duran. Mythology is the realm in which reality and imagination meet, where future and past make the present, where humankind and God make a person, where a body and spirit make the heart beat. A nation without her myths is solitary, a land without its legends is barren, and a people without their folk tales are devoid of creative power. That's Shimbum Shik from, Korea, from South Korea. This next one is from Alina Helander Renval. She's a, a, a scholar and a Sami elder, and I was uh, actually privileged to be on a dissertation committee with her at one point, looking at indigenous leadership techniques among the Sami people. This is her take, and she wrote a book on myth too, by the way. Regardless of how we define myths, the myths are available to us. I like that. There's, there's something really generous about the stories themselves, even when they're brutal or tragic. In their daily lives, people often search for explanations for their existence and identity, for the origins of their activities, for the plans of the gods, and for certain truths to emerge. Myths are able to give answers that modern knowledge systems cannot afford to give. I think afford is an interesting choice of word there. In postmodern times and beyond, myths help to stretch the boundaries of the prevailing worldviews and modes of thought. We have to bring back the power, the honor, and the role of the storyteller in society again. We have to teach ourselves what a storyteller is. Pauline McLeod, Navajo. I'm interested in the rhythm of stories because I really care about the rhythm, like in a film. I don't want, to feel it, I don't want it to feel boring. It's a change in the rhythm when you put the story to another person. And also maybe because here in Iraq, everyone wants to tell a story because they have lived through 40 years of violence. Hassan Blassen. Through migration and assimilation, many of my Caribbean relatives forgot their history or chose not to remember. I see this as detrimental to preserving our history and culture. I think this is why telling the stories of Trinidad and Tobago's folklore was so important to me. There was power in the story. The story is what got us through slavery, made sense out of chaos, and allowed us to be free and creative in a constricted world. Marjorie Kennedy. Storytelling used to be a very popular art in the Arab world. The Arabic word for storyteller, hakawati, he would sit in a cafe, sip tea, and tell amazing stories to people belonging to any age or color. My aim in life is to bring that human contact back into people's lives through storytelling, Abir Suleiman. I mentioned uh, Devdet Patnaik earlier. This is a quotation from him. That no deity can exist without an ecosystem of consorts, children, servants, assistants, friends, plants and animals and minerals is a reminder that nothing exists in isolation. We are part of a web, and depending on the context, one deity becomes more important than the other, more significant than the others, but only until the context lasts. 
And then a last quotation from Michael Mead. Myth speaks to the extraordinary in us and to the innate nobility of our souls. Hearing a mythic story awakens the myth living in each of us. As the story enters into us, we enter the timeless territory of myth. We become mythic again, a knowing participant in our own story and a seeker near its source. And actually, uh, so I do have one more. <laughs> As we get into how these myths walk around and among and inside of us, this is Joseph Campbell. Some of you have heard this quotation before. It's pretty well known. Uh, it, would be, it would not be too much to say that myth is the secret opening through which the inexhaustible energies of the cosmos pour into human cultural manifestation. The latest incarnation of Oedipus, the continued romance of Beauty and the Beast, stand this afternoon on the corner of 42nd Street and 5th Avenue waiting for the traffic light to change. You know, as many times as I've heard that, whenever I've visited New York City, I always forgot to go to the corner of 42nd and 5th Avenue to just see, to just be there and see, is there anything mythic happening here or is it just another street, you know? So I mentioned that in an online class I was teaching <clears throat> and one of the students happened to be in Manhattan and so she went to that street corner and took pictures and then she posted it for the whole class to see. It was, it was sort of mythic. <laughs> it's pretty neat. I thought, so there it is. Now I, now I know, it's, it's, and it's near the library. So what I wanted to do now is um, give you a couple of examples of at least where I think myth is surfacing. It's always a little tricky to do this because uh, sometimes the examples really require more substantiation than just a quick hit will give us. And so some of these I've looked into a lot um, and other ones just strike me as being parallel with some of the stories that I'm familiar with from different cultures. Um, and, and really needs substantiating. But when we do myth work, if we're looking at myths as they actually occur in a contemporary event or in our lives or what have you, it's really important to do the grounding move of looking both at the parallels and seeing how many there are, but also looking at counterexamples that might say, no, maybe, maybe this is just wishful thinking, you know. Sometimes when myth shows up, it can be as um, obvious as the unicorn, even though I, the lousy unicorn was, didn't really count that I mentioned earlier. But there, a couple of years ago, in, in uh, 2014, there was a statue of Apollo that actually surfaced, was dug out of the ocean near Gaza, of all places. And so if you hold this with a mythic wondering, it lets you ask other questions like, not, not so much why would the statue surface there. Well, the obvious why is because people saw it and they brought it out of the ocean. But the bigger why, like, hmm, so Apollo uh, is the god of many things, including healing, and um, he's, he's kind of distant in some ways, but order, uh, he's called Phoebus sometimes because of his relationship to the sun and the illumination. And he's... Um, very much a god of harmony. He, he doesn't like things out of order, right? So why would Apollo surface near Gaza? Might there be a hint there of some healing or some order 
in that, that terrible, tragic, and unjust and, and ongoing situation? Maybe. That would be something for somebody to look into if they were interested in understanding if that really, is it random or is it a synchronicity or a signal of some kind? Similarly, a statue last year of Pan surfaced in southern Israel. <clears throat> Pan is the, uh, he's a nature god, he's wild. Um, he's where we get our word panic because of his habit of, Pan just for kicks would like to hide in bushes and he would wait for people to walk by and then he would jump out <clears throat> you know, and, and frighten him. So that's where our word panic comes from. Uh, also our word pandemic, so that's Pan in a really bad mood. But that would be something else to look at. Why, what's that about? Why does that surface there? A, a little closer to home, I wrote, and you can find this online if you look it up, I think it's called, it's been a while since I looked at it, uh, oh, um, A Brief Mythology of Petroleum. I was looking a while ago into the history of petroleum production, primarily in the US, but in other places as well. And what struck me through a mythic lens was how consistently the imagery of the underworld follows the flow of oil. It's just amazing. Um, as one example, there's a river, the Cuyahoga River, which um, fortunately is now pretty, in pretty good shape. But uh, it's been heavily damaged in the past by oil spills to the point where it actually burned some incredible number, I think 26 times or something. So the oil would spill, a spark would set the river on fire. And when I saw pictures of that river, I immediately thought of Phlegathon, which is the, the burning river in Hades. American oil production, it began in Pennsylvania, but it was quickly taken over by Standard Oil Company under the first Rockefeller. And when you look at pictures of him wearing a, he, he's kind of a spectral figure. Uh, there's not that many photographs of him because he, he preferred to work in the dark, in the back away from all the, uh, the, the front action, but then he would send threatening letters to his competitors saying resistance is futile, you know. And then he would, he would buy them out or he would blackmail them or whatever tactics he would use. <clears throat> and I just for the heck of it, I pulled up an old picture of Pluto, um, known to the Greeks as Hades. And I put them together and went, well, that's kind of a good match. <laughs> and uh, by the way, Pluto is actually where we get our word plutocracy. Um, the word means hidden wealth, uh, shadowy hidden wealth. It's, a, it's an underworld wealth. So that would be an example, plutocracy. So have a look at that, that online paper if you're curious about some of the other underworld imagery that tends to follow oil around a bit and what that might mean. In contrast to forms of clean energy production, which are more evocative of deities like not so much Pluto or... Thanatos, which is death, or those entities, but um, more along the lines of Gaia and Helios, the abundant sun, and um, the, the various wind gods, Aeolus, and some of the other ones. It's, a, it, it's not just a matter then of uh, differences in, in energy technology, it's also, from a mythic standpoint, a difference in pantheons, a difference in archetypes, different psychologies at work. So it's not a neutral area. To take another example, we've, we've probably uh, all seen news stories and maybe even um, participated this, in this ourselves when 
some new version of something technological comes out like an iPhone or an iWatch or what have you, and then there's long lines, and people actually camp out for them, you know? And um, I wondered about this for a while, and then I made a bit of a connection in my own, my own mind about it. And I think it's, you know, the, the usual criticisms of that have been, have sounded something like, um, oh, these people have nothing better to do than to wait in line all, all night for a phone and blah, blah, blah. But if we look below that, are not these instruments our modern versions of amulets and magic wands? I actually have a, I didn't, I didn't camp out for it, but I have an iPhone in my pocket right now. And um, with it, I can pull up the weather in China. Um, I can change my appearance, at least online, right? <laughs> um, I can do things that Merlin couldn't do with his, his magic wand. So at some level of the human psyche, maybe unconscious, aren't we responding to and being uh, spellbound and enchanted by new technology, partly because it's not just new technology, it's superpowers. The phones that come out one after another, especially the way Apple does it, they don't really look any different. Uh, they, you know, the same design year after year and all that. And, you know, people say, oh, it's underwhelming and blah, blah, blah. But then they go out and buy one, you know. The powers are upgraded each time. It, it, more of this, more of that, new apps, things like that. So if, I think from a mythic standpoint, it actually makes sense why they would be so spellbinding. And also dangerous if you're walking down the street, right? <clears throat> Which state was it that, that wants to pass a law? I think it's New Jersey, um, against walking and looking at your phone at the same time. Does anybody know? I can't remember. Um, yeah, you can check your phone. <laughs> yep. Yeah, do that and let us know. So another question, too, in terms of technology, the, even this, you know, an area where mythic motifs, folkloric themes, images from the past are, are rich and in motion. Um, I gave a presentation here in San Francisco for the High Ground Hackers, who are a group of uh, they, IT programmers, coders, and other people who work technologically with social causes. And so... Uh, I think it was about a year ago, they did one on preventing gun violence. So what they did was ask CIS to send some scholars who work in different areas related to that, and we would meet with and, and give presentations to the people that were at their conference, uh, and then they could get ideas about what technology could, could come out of that in service to peace. And so... Um, I went because of my, um, the experience I mentioned earlier, the six years of working with violent men. And so part of what I presented, though, which I'm not sure they expected, was um, I wanted to talk to them a little bit about this relationship between myth and technology and bring that into the foreground. So at one point, um, I mentioned <laughs> the, the uh, kind of off the cuff, you know, I mentioned the, the image of Indra's net of jewels, um, and how hanging over the palace of Indra, there's this fabulous net that goes throughout the universe, and it's composed of nodes of magical light that, that each one of which reflect, refracts the entire universe inside of itself. And so I was thinking about that, and um, 
I was also thinking about how Indra was, in many ways, one of the most narcissistic of all gods. He, there's stories about um, the palace that he built that he had to go through some major internal adjustments, let's put it that way, before he stopped having it worked on. So Indra is an a extremely egotistical god. So uh, I, I suggested that, that perhaps, given how sometimes we tend to use social media for self-aggrandizement and a bit of narcissism mixed in, that perhaps we should rename it the Indranet. And they, they like that, so. Um, but that, that should be looked into. So from going a little bit from technology to science and also academia, um, there's, there's a mythic figure. I'm not sure that he's a god, but he's certainly a villain. And I seem to see his presence in a lot of different areas where um, research or scholarship is actually not just criticized, because that's our job as scholars, to criticize scholarship. Among, that's one of our jobs. But actually to the point of rejecting new ideas uh, and killing insights and things like that. And so there's a story, um, I won't give you the whole story, but th this is surely somebody you've heard of. Uh, he was an infamous innkeeper and um, he had a, a bed that was a one size fits all. And so if you came to his inn and your legs were too long for the bed, he would chop them off so they would fit. And if your legs were too short for the bed, he would stretch them and then make them fit that way. So he was really big on making the legs fit, right? And of course, his name was Procrustes, the bed of Procrustes, the famous bed of Procrustes. So in science, and not just science, but in academia in general, when theory comes first and discovery comes later, or where dogma comes first and original research comes later, we might start wondering if there's a certain devotion to the figure of Procrustes that's actually going on in the background from a mythic standpoint. So, and this, by the way, I think is one of the, one of the utilities of myth. It lets us stand back a little bit from whatever situation's engaging us and look at it from the standpoint of, of cultural stories and fantasies. Because cultures have stories and fantasies, mythology, and archetypes to some extent, just as individuals do. So if we know, for instance, that, hmm, when I rejected that proposal, I was kind of standing at the altar of Procrustes just then. It's not just a matter of throwing interesting mythic names around. It actually shows me where I have succumbed to a cultural fantasy and let it speak for me. So myth can help focus on where the culture grabs us in ways that are not helpful. Couple more examples. So I have to talk about Donald Trump. <laughs> There's just no getting away from it. Uh, we've talked a lot about him in the classes I'm doing right now. I, I'm teaching a doctoral seminar called Archetypal Mythology, and I also have an online class going called Applied Mythology. <clears throat> and we were, I was asking students, who do you think he is mythologically? Um, Young talked about a personal myth. Um, what, do you, what do you think is up with him? And so the favorite, so far is, uh, and it, would, it might surprise some people, but the favorite was Trickster as an archetype. Figure who comes up in many different cultures, but an unconscious Trickster. 
So here again is, I think, a, a utility of a mythic approach. Just like any other unconscious dynamic, if there's an activated myth, or in his case, an archetype, the archetype of the trickster, cross-cultural shows up in every society, if it's unconscious, then it's got you. It has us, we're possessed by it. And if you look at trickster stories, wow. <laughs> there are some that are just, um, you pity anybody who's had any exposure to trickster in these stories because trickster always goes too far and he can be extremely destructive. So as an example, I'll tell you one myth that comes to mind when I think about that particular candidate. <clears throat> and again, this would have to be substantiated, but it's the one that, that he reminds me of. So the, the Shoshone tell us that there was a time when only the desert people had fire. And south of them was coyote and he was getting cold. Plus, Coyote likes attention and nobody was paying attention to him. So he got together some of his accomplices. Um, one of them was Stinkbug and the other was Packrat. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, let's go steal some fire. And he put a wig on. And he said, how do I look with this nice hairpiece? And they went, uh, yeah, great, you look great. Yeah. So he found the desert people and he began with his, with his uh, disguise on, he began dancing around the fire to act like one of them. And so they all thought that he was one of them. So him and Stinkbug and um, Packrat are all dancing around the fire and at a pre-decided a pre moment, Coyote, scooped up the entire fire and stole the fire from the desert people and ran away with it with his two accomplices running after him. So what happens next, there's in many myths, there are actually in all myths, there are different versions of stories. There's not one single one like I mentioned earlier. So in one version of this myth, um, as Coyote runs with the fire, he realizes that the desert people who are now quite angry with him are gonna catch up with him. So he hands the fire to Packrat, and then Packrat runs away with the fire, and instead of keeping it just to himself, he distributes it to all the, all the creatures on Earth, and this is how fire comes to everybody, eventually humanity too. So that's one way that the story plays out, but in another way, he's, he's running and the, the, the sparks from the hot fire fly up into his wig and start it on fire. And it begins to burn and then it burns up Coyote and Coyote burns up. The, the fire that he himself stole burns him up completely. That's another version of it. So we'll have to see how this plays out. <laughs> if, that, if, if that's the myth, you know, if that's, if that's right. But uh, tricksters, um, when they're benevolent, when they're operating on a conscious level, they're, they can be considered culture heroes. They, they shatter structures that are too rigid, that have been in place for too long. They're deadly to corruption. If there's corruption that's gone on for too long, you can just expect a trickster move sooner or later. And they tend to bring three things into the world. 
fire, sex, and death. So an unconscious trickster brings all three of those in really horrible ways. And that is another utility of being conscious about myth and story so that we don't reenact them dangerously. A couple other examples. There actually was a unicorn escape uh, in February. Um, it was a little bit better of a unicorn than the other one I mentioned to begin with. Um, in in uh, the Central Valley in California, there was a kid's birthday party and there was a horse that was dressed up like a unicorn. They put like a horn on its forehead and they put like a little uniform on it and stuff. And the horse got tired of the birthday party and went, the hell with this, I'm out of here. And so the horse took off and was chased by the California Highway Patrol. <laughs> and who didn't know that, that there are only certain conditions under which you can trap a unicorn, right? So eventually they, they caught up with it. <laughs> and um, they found it in an orchard in Madeira. Um, by the way, I, I tend to look up, I'm compulsive about looking up names of things, areas, people's names and all that, because there's often a little bit of mythology or psychology or story in them. So if you don't know your names, look them up and look, do a little research, dig into them a little bit and see if there's an underlying story there somewhere. There often is. But um, so Madeira means mercy. <clears throat> and um, the, the unicorn was found exactly where you would expect to find one. It was in an orchard just hanging out by itself. So we did have a unicorn escape in California. Of course it was in California. There are plans on the board to colonize Mars, um, perhaps because Mars is colonizing us. There is a guy named Clive Palmer who's a, a multi-billionaire, and he's building Titanic II. One wasn't enough, I guess. Um, he's building an exact replica of the, of the Titanic. But he's behind because there have been numerous inexplicable construction delays. Right? So a little, a little piece of uh, history about the original Titanic. The, so we all know that the ship sank. It went down to the bottom of the ocean. Um, oceanographers have been, or ocean explorers, rather, have been going down there looking at the little boxes and articles and uh, treasures and things like that that are on the bottom, speculating about how it went down and all the rest of it. So in, in Greek mythology, Titan has a very specific meaning. The Titans were a race of gigantic beings who were destroying the earth because they were so out of control. They were running all over the place. So Gaia got really tired of this and said, well, we need some Olympians to stand up to these giants because they're not doing anybody any good. So Zeus came along and some of the others <clears throat> and uh, fought out a huge battle, the, the Titomachy, the, the fight between the Olympians and the, and the gigantic Titans. The Olympians won because they were the rightful gods who got the nod from Gaia, who's the mother of all the gods. And so Zeus, took what was left of most of the Titans and locked them up in a box in the deepest level of the underworld, exactly where the ship ended up, right? Incidentally, um, the ship had a sister ship called the Olympia, which had a, had a good record, actually. Um, what else? Oh, um, there are, oh, there's so much to talk about. The zombie apocalypse stuff. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. Um, and what does that mean? And um, I, when I see those stories, I always think of uh, Bram Stoker writing the Dracula novels about the undead. Who are, who are, they're not alive, but they're not dead either. They're kind of in between and lost, you know? So there's all that symbolism to go into. Um, and let me mention two more too, and then talk, I'll say a little bit about working with these and then, um, and then finish. So there was a photograph taken, um, I think it was late last year, and it's the first ever photograph of a photon caught right between being a particle and being a wave. You know, we've known that it, it does this for a long time, decades, but we never had a photograph of it actually suspended between the two states. It's a beautiful photograph, but it, it shows, uh, it's hard to describe, it's like a, it's like a flowing multicolored piece of fabric kind of darting off in one direction. It's really neat looking. Look it up sometime so you could see pictures of it. And um, so when I looked at that mythically, <laughs> I look at everything mythic these days, um, I was thinking about the multicolored traveling cloak of Hermes, who's the Greek trickster. Uh, we could call him Mercury, we could call him Eshu, who has a magic hat that changes colors depending on what side of it you're on. There's all these great stories about Eshu um, coming into situations where there's a little too much um, rigidity and then he messes with people with his hat and they start fighting with each other. <laughs> That's Trickster is an agent of chaos. That's a good way of, you know. He's also an agent of quantum mechanics. And um, many scholars have pointed out the odd similarities between non-locality non and um, all the other things that make quantum mechanics so tricky and problematic and difficult to nail down. It's almost like Hermes is running that level of, or whatever trickster we want to talk about is running that level of things. Um, and of course we know that very often tricksters are the consort of the goddess of erotic beauty and love. And for the Greeks that would be the relationship between Hermes and Aphrodite or Mercury and uh, Venus for the Romans. And it goes through many other cultures and pantheons. And so there, it struck me, and I, I talked a little about this. I was invited to um, present to PCC um, la last year. And one of the things I mentioned was that if you were to take an ancient Greek and move them forward through time and explain vacuum energy and how in a, in a given space where there seems to be nothing, out of the background, it's usually referred to as uh, quantum foam, out of the background of this flux, two particles appear and they rush together and they liberate their energies and then they disappear back into the flux. An ancient Greek would have no trouble understanding this symbolism. They would say, yes, because Aphrodite was born from the flux of the waves of the ocean, as are many of the love and beauty goddesses. Not always associated with the ocean, although many are, like Lakshmi, but always associated with, with flowing water, thinking of Oshun, for example, um, many of them. So there's some sense in which these mythic images, if we can see through them this way, present to us their relevance generation after generation, if we're willing to hold them lightly and not so literally. So a few, to kind of consolidate, wrap up a little bit, 
Um, what good is it to identify daily myths, myths that are happening in contemporary events? One, it changes the story. Um, the very fact of working with the myth begins to change it, just as, and Young pointed this out, and so have other psychotherapists, when you begin to engage with something surfacing from the unconscious, it begins to lose its edginess and its violence, and it starts to become integrated into consciousness as you're working with it. Same thing with myth. It begins to soften up. It loses its deterministic feeling. And then it opens up the possibility that you can make a creative elaboration of the story. And that's really what, what it wants. If we play with the, the fantasy that myth itself is a psychical being, it wants to be elaborated. It wants to be retold in a way that helps it individuate, perhaps. It doesn't do any good for it just to play out blindly over and over again. So what good is identifying a myth? It lifts that state of possession. I mean, imagine if somebody like, uh, not just Donald Trump, but any unconscious trickster figure, if they became conscious that, that the trickster is their job, they could genuinely be funny. <laughs> they could genuinely, like, our, like many comedians do actually, they could bring light to urgent social problems instead of being destructive people. Um, looking at a myth, as it operates, as it expresses itself, suggests ways to move forward on many other levels too. So for instance, there is a figure named Aristeas who was a beekeeper and he came back to his hives one day and the bees were all gone. Same situation we're going through, colony collapse disorder. And he realized at some point that he had offended uh, her name is Eurydice, and her, she's an underworld goddess, a goddess of the deep interior of, of Earth. Her name means widespread justice. So he had offended the justice of Earth and of society by what he did. I won't go into the whole story. And to make the bees come back, he had to apologize to her, to Earth, to animals, and other things too. So the, the myths often, they don't give you a specific literal solution, but they indicate a, a general direction to go in, like a dream containing an insight. And uh, a couple of other things too. These days, especially when we play with myths, it, it lets us look at the different mythic characters who've kind of gotten, on the, they've got the short end of the stick because of cultural biases, for instance. And now is the time, it's so exciting, when they can speak up. So a colleague of mine, Janet Rich, at Pacifica Graduate Institute, did an, uh, a dissertation a couple of years around the topic of the return of Guinevere, who has been so shabbily treated in the Arthurian cycle. It's all about Arthur and Lancelot and the knights and all the rest of it. Guinevere does different things that, uh, by the cultural standards of her day, were frowned on. Um, she gets shoved into the background and mistreated and all, all kinds of things happen to her. And so Janet Rich presents the idea that Guinevere is actually the, a wisdom goddess and lets her speak for herself for a change. So myth has a lot of potential to do that. It also lets people in cultures that have been treated like that have their voice too through their own stories. And uh, two other things I'll mention too. The, the seemingly the most impractical of all human activities 
can create enormous cultural change. Absolutely enormous. Um, there was a man by the name of Elias Lernrot <laughs> who went around Finland collecting old Finnish folklore back in the late 1800s. And he did this because he was saying to himself something that many other people have since said to themselves, including Tolkien, why does my country have no mythology? Where are our stories? So he went around and collected some. It wasn't even a particularly scholarly version. Um, had lots of gaps and holes in it. But he put them together in a book, Kalevala, and he published it. And soon after that, the Finns began reading it and got really uh, energized by it. They started standing up to their powerful neighbors who had dominated Finnish affairs for centuries. They declared the independence of their country. <clears throat> and they were, so, um, they were so taken by this, this, this set of stories that they were coming up to him in the streets. He wasn't even a professional folklorist. He was a doctor who was interested in stories. And they came up to him and said, thank you because you have given back our heritage to us. So he, one person collecting stories changed the self-esteem of an entire country. And that has not worn off. So when I've spoken to environmental activists sometimes about the psychology of what they're doing, the psychology of denying climate change and other things that come up, very often they'll say things to me. You know, I say, why are you doing what you're doing? What's, what motivates you? And they'll use images from myth and folklore and even contemporary works too. Um, one guy said to me, I'm trying to stop the world from turning into Mordor, which is a theme out of Tolkien. <clears throat> So all of those reasons, I think, are good ones for being interested in myth. And I'll mention the final one, which is that for in the West especially, for the past 400 years or so, with the uh, scientific and industrial revolutions, there has been what's widely called a disenchantment of the world. We don't experience the world, most of us, as magical and meaningful and inspirited and ensouled anymore. But we often did this and people continue to do this through their indigenous stories. So it looks to be a cyclical event rather than simply a single death of the gods, so to speak. In other words, throughout history, there are periods where collective consciousness moves beyond a literal belief in the current gods. And they, they, then the stories come up of the gods dying, right? the story in Plutarch about somebody sailing past a certain island hearing them say, the great god Pan is dead. Um, lots of images of dying gods throughout history. And then there's a period, an in-between period, um, similar to, well, I always think of Nietzsche in this connection saying, I give you the advent of nihilism, uh, a, a kind of a dead zone between eras. But then, eventually, there is a rejuvenation of stories of, if we think of them as deities, we could think of them in Jungian as archetypes. The powers walk the world once again. So I think, my impression is anyway, and I guess we'll see if it actually pans out. Pans out. Um, I think we're living in a time where these powers are being reinterpreted at such a rate that they're coming back to life in human cultural life. And I find that very exciting. So, which is why I'm interested in this whole topic of the re-enchantment of the world. And by the way, um, 
one of the goddesses in Pandora's jar, and it was a jar, it wasn't a box. Um, the one at the very bottom, the most powerful one, her name was Elpis, and her name means hope. So, a couple of resources. I'm putting together with, fortunately, a team of really great people who know what they're doing, uh, a myth and folklore journal called imminencejournal.com, or that's the website anyway. Uh, it's, the journal is Imminence, uh, the Journal of Applied Mythology, um, sorry, Mythology, Legend, and Folktale. So we're putting it up now. Um, we have a Facebook page, Facebook slash Eminence Journal. So those are some resources. I have other ones. If any of you are interested in the syllabi for my classes, you can ask, if you email me that, in that I will send them right to you. And I have other uh, ways of getting in touch with myth as well. So a couple of final quotations. Just a few. Every positive statement about ultimate things must be made in the suggestive form of myth, of poetry. Myth is a symbolic story which demonstrates the inner meaning of the universe and human life. That's Alan Watts. And one more. Let me tell you a story. When I hear those words, I relax and put aside whatever it was that I was thinking about or doing. I prepare to concentrate on that which I'm about to hear because those words are a special invitation to step into another reality, into another time, or another way of thinking. I may become more sensitized to the feelings of others as I find myself experiencing the world from another perspective. Hopefully, I'll learn something new. And that's the storyteller, Kay Owen. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.